Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully, carefully. And welcome to Utterly Moderate, the podcast where two reasonable social scientists analyze important topics by clearing away politics, opinions, and ideologies to get to the facts. We like to think of ourselves as the opposite of cable news. I'm Allison Dagnus, and I'm a political scientist. And I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. Happy Memorial Day, Allie. How are you doing? Hi, Lawrence. I'm well. Happy Memorial Day to you, too. Are you enjoying this... um, this holiday weekend. I am, although it's like in Pennsylvania right now, it's like 30 degrees. It is. It's, so it's freakishly like cold. Summer. It yeah. does not. No. And and I'm just staring longingly at, you know, shorts and T-shirts and sundresses and all in the things. Closet. Yeah. That are just sitting there looking back at me longingly as I'm wearing all of my winter clothing because it's really honking cold outside. It's the unofficial start of summer. Yes. I, you know, culturally, I think we um, we just now think of Memorial Day as the start of summer. Right. Right. As opposed to thinking of what Memorial Day is actually supposed to be about. Um, and we do that with a lot of holidays. Right. I mean, yes, let's be very honest now. You know, I mean, we take a lot of holidays. You know, Easter has been boiled down to, you know, chocolate. being about chocolate and yes. rabbits and stuff and <laughs> and. You know, and Christmas is about presents and um, Easter brought to you by Reese's. That's exactly right. You know, and (laughs) Halloween, which really should be the celebration of, you know, the devil, you know, really is just more about costumes, more candy. That one really pisses you off. (laughs) It really does. away from the devil. You know, let's get let's get back to brass tacks um, and celebrate what really should be what really should be celebrated. Um, Ali's a Wiccan. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My children sometimes think I am. Uh, And some of my students do, too. Uh, But all of that said, um, Memorial Day is more than just the unofficial start of summer. Um, It also is meant to signify and memorialize, it's in the title, the remembrance of service members who died in service to their country. And so today we have actually a special episode where we are going to be talking about, not about that specifically, but we're going to be talking about the military. And we have, um, it's kind of cool. We're, we, we're bringing on a guest, Bill Flesser, who is, um, I will, I will cop to it. He's a, he's an old friend of my husband's and, um, he was in the special operations forces for many, 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 many years. And he is joining us to talk all things special ops, which is really kind of neat because I don't know about you, Lawrence, but I got most of my special ops information from pop culture. So yeah, Jane. Yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. I mean, and uh, you know, who didn't want to look like Demi Moore in that movie? Oh, I did. Everybody I'm not going to make this. Uh, I'm not going to make this joke because I'm nice, and I would never make this joke to you personally. I would never make it over the uh-huh. air to all of our listeners, to all uh-huh. of the 44 countries around the world now. Uh-huh. Cut to. So by I'll the way, just, he's texting this joke at me right now. I can see yeah, him so picking up I'm his just, phone. I'm just mm-hmm. telling you. I'm not going to say it. Of course not. Uh, but I'll just tell you what I would have said had I had I delivered it. When you said Bill was an old friend, I was going to tell you that I've only known you four years, but I consider you an old friend. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, that's very kind. You see, I thought you were going to make a joke um, at my friend, expense about. <laughs> yes, I know. I'm like I described you actually to someone um, 
I described our working relationship that it was like I was your professional aunt the other day. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's I mean, that's almost right. Like, I feel like that's wrong, but almost right. Like, that's sort of right. Aunt Allie. Aunt Allie, the Wiccan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's a real witch. I see. I thought you were going to make a real. I thought you were going to make a joke at my expense about not wanting to be living in a country where I was in the military. And I would I would endorse that. I really would, um, because having been a very proud army wife, um, I'll tell you, I don't think you really wanted to live in a country where I was even nominally associated with the armed services because that that also I was not I was not great even at that, like even just at the kind of like show up and smile and support stuff. Um, you know, I mean, I was very supportive, but I, I was like too enthusiastic and loud and supportive. And, um, <laughs> and so I was I tended to be shunned at um, social functions. Um, but it's hilarious. You know, like the army is like, you know, we love patriotism, but yeah, but she is down. just like a notch too far. Like I, yeah. I was at I was actually it's totally true. Story. I've got a lot of these. I was at a party at um, the home of the commanding general of the 10th Mountain Division at Fort Drum. And um, his wife had a bunch of the spouses over. And so I was there and she came out of the kitchen with this tray of hors d'oeuvres. And she said, um, uh, careful, hot stuff coming through. I said, and she's got some food also. (laughs) 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 And everyone just... It was like silent. I mean, and everybody just sort of looked at me and went, oh, my God, are you really talking to the wife of the commanding general like that? I was like, what? I mean, she looks great. And also she's got snacks. Like, who doesn't want to say that to somebody? It makes her feel good. It made her feel good. Next morning, Pete was dishonorably discharged. (laughs) (laughs) So today's episode, I think we want to... um, First of all, say thank you to everybody who has served. We do want to remember those we have lost. And also, Lawrence, um, I want to know more about those um, friends and family members you know who have served. And maybe we could tell a few more stories about our own experiences. Well, I want to hear about Pete, but uh, if you want me to go first, I can go first. I do want you to go first. Um, I'm not an especially uh, military family, but I do have a few folks uh, who have served I had an uncle Roland who was in the armed forces for a very short period of time, but he came down with multiple sclerosis. Oh, no. Yeah, he was honorably discharged. And then he actually was buried in Arlington with my aunt Jeanette. Um, But my uncle Larry served for a long time. Um, Uncle Larry is married to my aunt Lucille, who is probably the nicest person I've ever met in my entire life. (laughs) And she gave me some background info for this episode. But um and they have five kids. I told you we're a very Catholic family. You know, I got four. I'm working my way up till five. Um, okay, this is news to me. Are you break? Is this breaking news? Boop, 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 it is boop, not. Boop, boop, it is boop, not. Boop, I'm 39. Boop, boop. It's over. You know, we, we need to we need to stop at some what point. What are you talking about? What do you mean it's over? Guys can have <laughs> I mean, babies until kids. they're like 112. <laughs> well, anyway, so uh, but Uncle Larry, he actually he went to uh, Holy Cross College and, and majored in economics and, and he graduated in 1961. Wow. And he was in the Air Force ROTC while he was there. So he ended up, I think, a year later after graduation, getting into the Air Force and served all the way until he retired just a few years ago. He actually passed away in 2019 hmm. and he retired a few years before that. But um, he was a systems analyst. Uh, and he, I, it's funny, I didn't realize this till I talked to my Aunt Lucille that uh, he's like me in a very 
for a very different reason, but I'm like a big pessimist, always thinking about like the worst thing that's going to happen. <laughs> always like, you know, the 0.01% chance something's going to happen. I'm always planning for that in my life. His job with the Air Force was to uh, work on the worst case scenarios for air and space defense. No way. <laughs> yeah. And my Aunt Lucille said that uh, that bled over into his personal life. Like <laughs> they'd be somewhere and he would be plotting out the worst case scenario that could possibly happen and planning 10 steps ahead. But um, anyway, yeah. So he's an interesting guy. He had top secret clearance. He was always in missions all over the world that he couldn't talk to his family about. And um, Lucille would kind of piece together you know, where she thought he was going and he couldn't tell her obviously, but, uh, she gave an example. She said one time that he, he left around Thanksgiving, he was gone for a month and he couldn't tell her anything about where he was going, what he was doing, but she kind of looked at the clothes that he was packing, you know, and she could see the conflicts that were on TV at the time. And so she kind of pieced together that he was probably doing something in, in, in Vietnam. But, um, anyway, yeah, really interesting guy. He ended up, uh, he ended up making it to Lieutenant Colonel uh, he was promoted to full colonel, but he turned it down because he didn't want to move his five children anymore. Because get this, they started in California, moved to Taiwan, where his first child was born, Carolyn, moved to Syracuse, where his next two children, Mark and Dave, were born, then briefly went to Mississippi, back to Syracuse. Then Lucille goes to Connecticut with the kids while Larry goes to Korea. And when he went to Korea, she was pregnant again with Michael. Uh, their fourth kid, they moved back to California, then briefly to Alabama, then back to California, where their fifth child, Elizabeth, is born, to Colorado, to Springfield, Virginia, where he worked at the Pentagon until retirement. And so, interesting guy. Sounds like, uh, you know, if the walls could talk, there's a lot of stories that his top secret clearance wouldn't allow him to tell. But, um, yeah, he died in 2019. He's buried in Arlington Cemetery overlooking the Pentagon where he worked for a long time. And uh, yeah, his family's sure proud of him. And uh, I'm very proud of him. It's nice to learn a lot about him on Memorial Day weekend. So That is really nice. That's yeah. a lovely story. And is Lucille still in Northern Virginia now? She is. She's in Springfield. Um, cool. I asked her, I said, what was your favorite place that you ever lived? And she said that... Uh, she cried every time they moved. <laughs> she, loved, she loved them all. And she's just a super nice person. Oh, that's um, so sweet. Interesting story. And this isn't actually very pleasant, but uh, it's just an interesting part of his story. Anyway, uh, Uncle Larry's younger brother, Jack, also served uh, in the military. And he died from cancer from Agent Orange in Vietnam. <gasps> oh, no. Can you believe that? Yeah, That's terrible. So, yeah, interesting. I found out through talking to Lucille that I have a distant relative who served, the same person served both in the Spanish-American War and World War One. Wow! So, I'm the big uh, wimp in the family. <laughs> I, I I don't <laughs> think that that's, I don't think that's true. Uh, you know, I went through my, my trials and tribulations with my comprehensive PhD exams, but... <laughs> Look, that is a, you know, that's a, that's a form of combat in some departments. Trust me. <laughs> There's no two ways about it. But um, uh, anyway, I just uh, to put a bow on that story. Uh, very proud. His family is very proud. Oh, um, sure. And um, they had a very nice funeral despite COVID. They eventually uh, were able to get a very nice funeral at, uh, at Arlington National Cemetery. Aww. And uh, yeah, pretty neat. Pretty interesting story. Good guy. So, that, he sounds like it. Yeah. Um, my dad was in the Air Force for like, three minutes and he was stationed up near Syracuse, but I don't think in Syracuse, uh, he was stationed outside actually in Rome, New York, which I think is somewhat near there. And, um, and then he and my mother were sent to Newfoundland 
And my mother said that getting off, getting off the plane in Newfoundland was like landing on the moon. That there was there was not one bit of color or or nothing. Like it was all just various shades of white and gray. And they got off the plane and looked around, and uh, and inside the airport as they were looking out onto this just sort of moonscape of nothingness, they saw a bird flying as you know as hard as it could flying exactly backwards because the winds were so hard. (laughs) And my mother looked at my father and said, you really have to get us out of here. And so um, they got to the Air Force Base in Newfoundland and the commanding officer there, I'm not sure what rank he was, you know, was showing my dad and my mom their quarters or whatever. And my dad pulled him aside and said, sir, there's something I have to tell you. I'm gay. And the commander said, son, Two things. First of all, you don't want to have that on your record. And second of all, there's a very long list of of soldiers here who have already said that they're gay and who cannot be transferred out because we can't replace you. So um, if you would like us to add your name to the bottom of that list, you can wait for a while. And my dad's like, nah, never mind. And so the commander was like, all right, let's get you and your not man wife to uh, get inside your quarters and um, we'll put you in charge of what you're in charge of. And so then I, I asked my dad, what were you in charge of? And according to him, and he's a very funny, not reliable narrator about this, but according to him, he was in charge of like the officer's wives club or something like that. And within six weeks of being up in Newfoundland, became terribly sick to the point that they thought he was going to die. And so they evacuated he and my mom out of there and sent them to Walter Reed, where they told my mom, like, your husband's going to die. Oh, my God. And yeah. And he was at Walter Reed for like a year, like in there for a year. And as he was as he was leaving Newfoundland, all of these soldiers who were up there and airmen were like, we are so jealous. And he's like, I'm going to die. They're like, whatever, you're getting out of here. This place is awful. (laughs) Same thing. (laughs) Yeah, he was like, "Okay, well, bye. (laughs) His entire like his shtick was like, I played so much poker when I was up there. I was like, you were up there for six weeks. Like, it's all we had to do. Like, we just played poker for six weeks. It was, you know, it was really fun. And then I left. Um, And so he didn't die. Uh, he was honorably discharged as a disabled American veteran. I'm like, you were not in long enough to really be considered <laughs> a veteran. He's like, but I am. Um, and he is because, you know, we celebrate Veterans Day on November 11th. And that is an honor of anybody who has served and who has been discharged honorably. So my dad gets to celebrate Veterans Day, as does my husband, who was in for 25 years in the army. <laughs> and um and uh, did serve more times and did more stuff. Although it's also possible that my husband was also in charge of an officer's wives club at some point, but I'll have to go ask him about that another time. So tell us about Pete. Ah, um, so Pete, uh, Pete joined the army because of college, because he, uh, he Catholic boy as well, saw that he was one of five. And so his parents were helping to pay for college for five kids. And he was like, okay, um, this was, he's, you know, he's decades and decades older than I am. So uh, this was during the Vietnam war, right at the end of the Vietnam war, he went to college in 1975. And 
um, that was right at the end. So the army just could not get anybody to join ROTC. I mean, for the life of them, they're like, please, please. And they said, listen, all you have to do, we'll pay for all four years of your college. You don't have to get a haircut. You don't have to wear a uniform on campus. And you only owe us two years of service after school. We'll pay for all four years. And my husband's like, sign me up. He had mutton chops. He had like long hair. He was he was a folk guitarist. He was a folk guitarist in college. And so he was also in ROTC because he is a man of many contradictions. And so he um, he ended up really enjoying himself. He took that first job and uh, decided he would stay on for a second job and stayed on for a second and then a third and so forth. He was um, he was a personnel guy. And so he was he did travel around a lot because that's what you do. Um, but he was basically like a human resources officer with personnel command. So um, when I met him, like he was a policy wonk. Right. And, you know, that's my language. And uh, and so he had been working out not at the Pentagon, although he worked at the Pentagon when we were dating. He moved from the Hoffman building, which is where Persecom was, over to the Pentagon to work for the um, Assistant Secretary of the Army for Manpower and Human Affairs. This wonderful woman named Sarah Lister. She is a delight. She's just fantastic. Um, and so, you know, he talked policy. He was really adroit when it came to understanding the workings of um of what it was that soldiers needed. He was very, very tuned in to kind of how to make soldiers' lives better. And that was always what I really, really found most compelling about him, which is really, really super smart dude. So um, when I first met him, uh, I had been at a, <laughs> I had been earlier in the day at a bridal shower for a woman uh, with whom I worked at C-SPAN. And you were drunk. I was plowed. Okay. I was completely plowed. Uh, and she was, she was older than I was. And so all of her friends, I was sitting with all of them and I was in my mid twenties. They were in their like late thirties, early forties, and they were also plowed. And, and so I was just peppering them with questions about like having kids and being married and everything. And so I got to this barbecue and there was Pete and I was just chock full of information about basically like giving birth and having episiotomies. Like it was, I was, just I was very excited, right? I was like, you I have just found out first date conversations. Oh, and it was not even a date. Like I have never laid eyes on this man in my entire life. Like I showed up late. I'm wearing Let this me like tell you what I learned about episiotomies. I mean, serious that actually was almost my opening salvo because everybody else, it was August and everybody Check, was <laughs> yeah, I mean, why he did not run screaming away, I do not know. He should have. Um, we actually I'll be right have back. I'm going to go vomit. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, <laughs> it was too hot for him to go vomit. Everybody else was playing volleyball. And I thought, oh, God, it's too hot to play volleyball. And he was the only one who had common sense to go, it's way too hot to play volleyball. So I plunked down next to him and, and just started talking to him. And, uh, and so as we're chatting and, you know, final, it's D.C., right? So what do you do for a living comes up? And he says, uh, I'm in the army. And I said, oh, my gosh, have you ever killed anybody? And he said, no. And I said, have you ever had sex with a prostitute? And he said, no. And you have a very bad idea of what it is to serve in the army. And I was like, <laughs> you know, I, I hadn't really thought of that. You're right. I absolutely do. Tell me what it is you do for a living. And um, and so we did. And, you know, like a half an hour later, as I was still peppering him with questions about did you really ask him those two questions? Yep. Boom, boom. Like the I had those question you ask your date is 
he wasn't a date. I didn't know him. Like, this is even worse. (laughs) You have to understand. He was a stranger to me. Hi, Um, I'm Allie. Let's talk about murder, (laughs) uh, prostitutes, and episiotomies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you know what it really showed? And this is why, first of all, he's a very, obviously, is a very kind, very generous, very patient man. Um, but what it you really mercy showed. On your soul, so. Yes, no kidding. <laughs> um, what it really showed was how uh, badly we portray soldiers in pop culture for the 99% of us who don't serve. Allie had only seen Full Metal Jacket at that point. That's so pretty much it. I thought it was a documentary. You know, or the, or the um, you know, Ernest Goes to War movie, you know, <laughs> or Pauly Shore movie where he joins the so army. So are you a terrible comedian, Pete? <laughs> <laughs> but that's, you know, and, and that's, that's the problem, right? I mean, that's the problem is that we have these, these very false ideas about service and, um, and so from that, you know, from that moment on, it wasn't, you know, it certainly wasn't as if uh, it was a very short whirlwind romance. I mean, four years later, we got married. Um, but uh, it was it really was nice that he did not run screaming away from me <laughs> because in the course of just learning more about the military, I was then able to be and I actually feel like I am a halfway decent ambassador now for like the strengths of the military and the armed services. Like we got to, you know, like all of us go out there and not now because we're still kind of getting over COVID, but like someday hug a soldier, Um, you know, be better at this, be more Uh, understanding for our our listeners. uh, Most of you probably know this, but for those that don't go very quickly, pause the show um, Go look up what an episiotomy is. <laughs> and then rewind to the very beginning of this conversation. It's very funny. <laughs> You'll really I was, enjoy it. You know, it, it just, it, it was predictive of so much to come in our relationship. It really was. <laughs> and, you know, and after we had Maddie, our first baby, you know, he was just, just, just back from Afghanistan by days when we did, you know, and I, I was like, okay, here comes the episiotomy. He's like, what? I'm like, do you remember the first day I met you? Uh, on, you know, up, this up, is a return. Man. This is a return. It was six years ago, but still, <laughs> this is a return. <laughs> <laughs> Got to keep up, Pete. Come on. Come on. Come on. You're a smart guy. Got to keep up. So he saw a combat. He did, um, which came as a big surprise to me because I'm like, he's a policy wonk. Like, he's not going to go anywhere. Um, And then he did. Uh, So he when we were living at Fort Drum, which is a um, light fighter uh, infantry division, that was when September 11th happened. And um, so. As it turns out, uh, the 10th Mountain Division um, were the second folks. First folks to go into Afghanistan were the CIA. Second folks was um, the 10th Mountain Division. So very uh, quickly after September 11th, um, yeah, be deployed. And so I I just found out that I was pregnant <laughs> with Maddie. Oh, and I was like, ooh. Uh, and so um, away he went. Um, and it was uh, he was stationed at. Bagram Air Force Base, which was, I mean, it was raw and very, very, um, it was like, it, it, I think it had been occupied by the Soviets 
And so they were stationed there, but nobody had been there for, you know, a decade or two or whatever. Um, and um, and so there was nothing there. Like Pete was sleeping on the floor until, um, you know, I, I think I sent him a cot or something from Cabela's. Like for real. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm serious. Like one of the other wives said, you know, we can send them stuff like they can. They're now able to get mail. That's one of the things that Pete did. Actually, he was like in charge of the mail. Um uh, which, by the way, another funny story. One of the things that um, that his branch was always in charge of was the mail. Um, and he correctly saw that, like, when, you know, one of the things that makes a troop happy is when they get mail. And so he thought, you know, this is always very, very important. So one time he was stationed in Korea twice. And one time when he was in Korea, <laughs> um, one of his one of the folks who worked in the in the mail, I don't know if it was a battalion or brigade or no, not a brigade. Um, anyway, one of the the companies, um, there was a package and it was ticking. And so it was like, Oh, oh new, what is that? Yeah. Like, Oh, good. And so, you know, they, they went through the entire, you know, exact right operation and took the, the package out, you know, and exploded it. And as it turned out, it was a whole bunch of fake, you know, like knockoff watches. <laughs> and so, and so he made it onto the front page of like stars and stripes, like killing time in Korea. <laughs> ah, ah, that's my husband. <laughs> Love it. Love it. I had a friend once who, uh, worked in a watch factory uh -huh. and, uh, he got fired one day and I said, I said, what happened? You love that job. He said, yeah, but they told me I just kept standing around all day making faces. Oh. <laughs> you got to just make sure you do the noise like right there because. You know, he was, he was an interesting guy. Um, oh, no. Oh, no. This, this friend uh, with a wooden leg named Tom. Uh, I don't know what his, what his other leg's name was. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You, you mentioned the um, telling Pete you were pregnant when mm -hmm. uh, he was talking about being deployed. And you mentioned Korea. In uh, talking to Lucille, she said the same thing. She said, uh, Larry said, I'm, I'm going to Korea. Uh, this is the 1960s. And she said, I'm pregnant. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> he tried to get deferred, but he couldn't. He, that was his fourth child. And they said, no, nope, you're going. So, Oh, man. Yeah, she decamped to Connecticut to to have Michael. So now, I mean, I there were there was some time. There was some time between the um, I hi, I'm pregnant and uh, by you're leaving for Afghanistan. It wasn't like it was <laughs> it wasn't like it was bam, bam. Um, and I yeah, I mean, I I. I don't know why I, I stayed in Fort Drum. I'm not really sure why. Like, it felt like the right thing to do at the time. I'm not really sure why. Um, but I did. I, I mailed him a letter every day. I was very, like, ritualistic about it. And I mailed him a care package once a week. And I realized um, that very quickly that what he did, because he's so Pete, was he uh, gave all of the food that I sent him to all of the troops that were working with him. And so I started... Um, putting in more and more and more and more like huge bags of stuff. So the care packages got bigger. <laughs> Pretty soon I was feeding not only like his folks, but apparently also the Australians that were there. Question mark. Not really sure why. Anyway. Uh, yeah. How long was he in Afghanistan? He, you know, he was not there for 
a very, very long time. But the problem was he got there and nobody knew when they were going to be coming back. Yeah. Right. So it was very undetermined. Like, I think it was in total, it was like seven months or something like that. But like he got there and it was like, yeah, we don't know. And because I was pregnant, they were like, people were asking me, like, is he going to be coming back for the baby? And I was like, I don't know. Like, we just didn't we just didn't know. So I had to go through all of these different, you know, birthing plans and like when I was going to be moving back to D.C. because I would need help at that point. And, you know, like we had we had it all sort of planned out, you know, kind of. um, How do you deal how do you deal with that kind of stress of having somebody in a hostile situation like that so far away? It was um, awful. I mean, it was it was really, really awful. Uh, How do you manage and, it on a day to day basis? Um, well, I, um, you know, he had it worse, right? Because he was in. It was. It's really. It's. It's very. Uh, it's funny because I have students. I had students. You know, we have obviously drawn down so many troops starting in the Obama administration from Afghanistan that that now we don't have a very large presence there. But about 10 years ago, I had many, many students who were stationed at Bagram Air Base. And so I would say I would come home and say to Pete, um, you know, because I like to send care packages to my students who are stationed abroad um, and we always get notes back and emails back and stuff like that. And Pete's like, they have email. And I'm like, yeah, they sent it from the Burger King. And Pete's like, there's a burger. King. <laughs> it's like, we didn't have a toilet. Like we didn't have a shower. What are you oh, talking man. about? Like, this is, Oh my God. I was like, yep, there's a burger King there now. Um, so, you know, it's just, a, it's very, very different. Um, so he had it, you know, he had it much, much, much worse. We got to talk for five minutes once a week on the phone. And, um, and so both of us were just, it was very funny. Like both of us were trying as hard as we could to put our like best face on, you know? So it was like, hi, how are you? Oh, things here are fine. How are you? No, everything's great. You know, Afghanistan's so, beautiful this time of year. Yeah. He was like, wow, <laughs> I'm going to send you pictures from K2. It's really pretty. You know, I was like, oh, is it? He's like, how are you feeling? I'm like, I'm feeling great. Pregnant. You know, like everything's fine. You know? Um, yeah, I just, it, it was just, it was awful, but I, um, I really leaned heavily on my family and my friends. Um, I talked to my dad every single day and that was lovely. Um, and I talked to my friends all the time and I had just this really like hilarious group of grad school friends who came to visit on Fort drum. And we realized as they were coming through the gate, kind of who they were and what they look like and how they would fit in, <laughs> which is to say not much. Um, and, uh, and of course everybody was lovely and terrific and you fantastic. guys must be Allie's friends. Yeah, exactly. Like, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, we know, we know where you're going. Uh, so, you know, it was, hard. I was working on my, I was writing my dissertation. Um, and my dog was a big flaming pain in the ass. So, you know, it, was, it felt like I had things to distract me. And so you're pregnant. I was pregnant. Working on I your dissertation. Of, yeah. And your husband is in Afghanistan on active duty. Yeah. Cool. I won't get stressed out anymore about it was my a, life. You know what? I didn't <laughs> have you. little kids because I had friends who had little kids. And that, that was a level, that was a degree of difficulty that was much higher than mine. Because you've got little kids. Imagine running around after little kids when you're alone and your husband's in Afghanistan you know, I mean, like that was a I lot. Like, imagine. I can't imagine yeah. either. Well, so today, uh, 
there's lots of different directions we could have gone with our Memorial Day show. But we thought, uh, rather than go sad, we'll celebrate the military today, right? Indeed. So yes. who do we have on tap for today? So today we have Bill Flesser, who is um, a friend of my husband's from college. They went to Central Michigan University together back in the day. And, um, you know, he has had many an experience. He can speak of it with many an acronym that I uh, <laughs> could not repeat <laughs> if, if I tried because uh, I don't speak it fluently. So I'm going to let Bill describe his own experiences, describe his own um, uh, his own job description. He's recently retired. He is a total delight. Uh, and he knows a lot about special operations forces. And he is going to be talking to us about life in the military, about special ops, about psyops, which is one of my favorite topics to talk about with Bill. Without any further ado, Lawrence, are you ready? I am. I'm very excited about this. Let's go. Bill Flesser, welcome to Utterly Moderate. Great. Happy to be with you this afternoon. And, and what can I uh, how can I help further this discussion? Well, you know, I, uh, I I want to I want to be transparent and say that the way that I know you is through my husband. You guys went to college together when Pete and I were dating early in our relationship. The, the movie G.I. Jane came out. Did you ever see that? Are you familiar? I, I think I've caught parts of it. It's with Demi Moore in it. She she wants to become the first yeah, woman Navy SEAL. She shaves her head. Yeah. yeah. Very, very inspirational. Right. I mean, because she just she's like cut and she looks yeah. amazing. And uh, and in the course of all of this, you know, half the movie is like a political movie. It's like a political thriller. And the other half, of course, is a military thriller. So Pete and I sat down. And, um, you know, his big fatwa was like, don't touch my popcorn, which I realized <laughs> on our third date. So we each had our own popcorn. So um, we decided into this movie, OK, we're going to hold hands. And every time there was something about politics that was super wrong, I would squeeze his hand. And anytime there was something about the military that was wrong, he'd squeeze my hand and. My hand was like numb and I wanted to eat my popcorn about, you know, 20 minutes in. So we just forgot about it. And what I realized was, A, I go to see movies to eat the popcorn and B, um, we don't get a whole lot of really good depictions of special forces, although it was very inspirational. I wanted to shave my head. I wanted to be yeah. uh, a Navy SEAL. I wanted, I think, just to be Demi Moore, probably not be a Navy SEAL, but I wanted to be Demi Moore. And um, so Hollywood does not do a great job of describing special forces to us. And all of that is a very long wind up. Can you describe for us what really are the special forces? Like, what are we talking about here? Okay, so uh, special operations forces or SOF uh, are those forces within the United States Department of Defense that are organized, trained and equipped to operate uh, in a unique environment. And when I say that, it's because uh, a special operation is one that is high risk, where the United, the, the, the supported or president of the United States may or may not be, uh, want to be disclosed. Uh, and it involves uh, speed, uh, political sensitivity, uh, so special operations forces are trained and equipped to operate in that environment. 
Now, that environment is pretty broad. But again, sort of the genesis of this conversation is why should you care? It's because as a public citizen, as a taxpayer, you ought to understand how your money's being spent and you ought to be able to listen to the evening news and say, hey, look, that was now I understand a little more about how those people got to where they're they were going, why they were there doing what they were doing, if that makes sense. Uh, so you really have forces that are organized, trained and equipped to to conduct uh, operations. Uh, the third characteristic is even working through by or with indigenous or partner forces. Uh, so that really is the, the sort of broad mantra of special operations. Uh, and then each of the armed services of the United States, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, have a special operations component uh, within their force structure. Uh, in the Army, that's special forces, the Green Berets. That's my background. I did about 10 years of assignments, my 22-year career, and about 10 in, in, in special forces or special operations assignments uh, in uniform. Um, Navy SEALs, you hit that. And there's also a whole bunch of other stuff in the Navy, uh, small boat uh, crewmen, uh, small boat operations, et cetera. Air Force Special Operations uh, involves everything from large C-130 type aircraft that uh, for uh, long range re uh, infiltration and support to forces on the ground uh, to unmanned aerial vehicles, which you see all the time in the news, um, uh, uh, drone aircraft. Uh, so you got that. And then Marine Corps also has its special operations component patterned after the, uh, the Raider battalions of World War II. In addition, there's Army Rangers out there as well uh, that you often hear about. So it's it's a uh, uh, in in a I don't know what the whole DOD budget is nowadays, but the uh, uh, U.S. SOCOMs, U.S. Special Operations Command, is about two percent of the overall DOD budget. So it's a pretty small sliver, but for that sliver, you get a, a whole lot of capability that can do things that other parts of the Department of Defense cannot. Does that make sense? Over. Oh, P.S. I use the term over a lot because it seems like I'm transmitting. So I apologize for that. Can you give us some examples of special circumstances? You said they operate under special circumstances. So give us some examples of some missions that they might be uh, involved in. Yeah, I mean, this is very much uh, you see there's a high percentage of special operations forces soft in Afghanistan right now because uh, many of those bases and forward operating bases are a long way from uh, conventional means of support. Uh, they're working with in, indigenous with Afghan National Army or Afghan security forces. Uh, same thing you saw in Iraq, particularly uh, against the, uh, uh, the conflict in Syria that was wrapped up uh, over the last year. Very much you saw a number of special operations forces involved there. Uh, and then also uh, it's not just the threat of uh, of direct combat, but also uh, if you're in a situation where uh, a, a standard uh, military deployment involves a huge footprint of logistics and aircraft and bases, uh, you see a lot of uh, U.S. special operations in Africa doing small, low visibility missions. That, that doesn't mean they're covert, they're not sneaking around, uh, but they're, they're there to support the uh, uh, development of uh, 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 capabilities by our partners, uh, you know, in remote and austere places, Philippines, uh, Africa, those kind of places. Are most of the jobs that special ops folks do, are most of them 
covert or because it sounds like a lot of what they do is not covert. Yeah, mostly uh, um, I can totally speak from my experience. Let's put it that way. Um, There are in 99.9 percent of cases, you are going places wearing a green uniform with the United States flag on the shoulder. Um, So there are some cases where. Okay, I might be going somewhere the where I'm gonna I'm gonna put civilian clothes on to fly in an airliner uh, to get there. But that's no, those are not intelligence related activities as defined by uh, the National Defense uh, Act of 1947. How about that? I just pulled that one out because that really defines what an intel operation is, which would get you into that, all that uh, secret squirrel spook stuff, as opposed to a special operation, which is uh, straight up forces. Uh, of the United States military operating under the authority of the Department of Defense. Now, we didn't uh, at the at the top of this, we didn't talk about your own experience. So very briefly, before we get into the special ops part of this, can you talk about just your general overall military trajectory? What what's your career looked like? Yeah, sure. Um, I would say it's 42 years of undiscovered crime uh, that I was able to graduate uh uh, from central Michigan with Pete's help and get through, uh, the con- intervening 42 years was, uh, uh, a testimony to, uh, Kathy's perseverance and patience for one, uh, support <laughs> of a lot of people and some really good, uh, mentoring along the way. But, uh, uh, okay. So you asked about movies before. Uh, so what inspired me as a young cadet, Pete was probably in the room while we were doing this alley was, uh, we all saw the movie the Green Berets. Because uh, that was literally the only movie out there that, uh, uh, and one of the very few that talks about Army Special Forces. Um, it's panned as a horrible movie, but again, if people want to sort of get a sense for what the Army Special Forces genre is all about, that's a that's a good one to get one. So that was inspirational to me. I said, "Oh, I want to do some of that." Uh, so I I was a uh, uh, you know you can't come into Special Forces uh, without some intervening conventional time and earning your spurs, so to speak, as a uh, as a line officer. I did some time in uh, the infantry, went into special forces in the mid-1980s, which was the middle of the Cold War. Um, so the Cold War was really our focus for the first, uh, you know, 10 years of my uh, 10 years of my uh, uh, career, um, uh, at which time then uh, I was kind of on the uh, interesting part. Uh, the wall came down in 1991. That's when uh 89, 91, that's when I went, uh, deployed over to Europe and I was a, uh, uh, commander of a counterterrorism response force there for about two years in, in UCOM, U.S. European Command as we, uh, um, as we worked through what's post-Cold War security look like. Uh, I did some time in Bosnia, uh, when I came back, uh, uh and I was kind of in and out of special operations assignments, uh, uh, throughout my career, but, Ended then at Special Operations Command Europe, which is uh, the uh, the unified command, the joint command that handles all special operations uh, in the European area. Uh, so that got uh, me uh, involved as a really mostly as a staff officer in um, crisis response in Africa, Bosnia, Kosovo, uh, the conflicts in there, some of the post-Soviet uh, Union type things, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, uh, um, so I, and again, I retired in the summer of, uh, 90 or 2001 
a piece was breaking out all over. Um, so really, I would characterize. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, I would, I would characterize my military and special operations career as pretty long on history and theory uh, and doctrine and planning, really short on combat time. Like, Ali, your husband saw way more combat time than I did just in his short time in Afghanistan. Uh, I've never been really shot at in anger uh, or any of those uh, type of wazoo things. Um, uh, I have a pretty, what I would call mundane and boring life story when it comes to some of the guys in my profession. So hats off to them. We've been doing that for the last uh, uh, 20 years. My last 20 years then was as a civil servant, uh, mainly as a program manager. I said the SOCOM over the last 10. That was probably rambling a bit, but uh, give you a general idea kind of where I'm coming from in this discussion. Not a flag officer, uh, topped out as a lieutenant colonel, and then really uh, uh, was a GS-14 as a civil servant. So I spent a lot of time on what we call the road deck, you know, to the beat of the drum. I was never the guy beating the drum. So uh, happy to do that. Uh, uh, retired honorably. It was uh, a great experience for me and my family. Two kids along the way, uh, both of which doing very well. So I feel myself... Uh, uh, you know, pretty happy with the career I had in the Department of Defense uh, and happy that uh, I got to work with some great men and women in uh, the special operations field along the way. Uh, as, as a Cold War, you, you're a self-described Cold Warrior. Um, what's been your reaction to um, Putin and Russia and their role in the world today and our relationship with Russia? You can go any direction you want with that. Okay, fair enough. Again, I'm speaking now as a uh, uh, as from the perspective of how do you handle the problem of Russian malign activities around the world, uh, in which case uh, special operations can and should be a part of that. Um, the, as I said earlier, uh, talked earlier about, uh, I was honored to serve with uh, uh, about 25 or 26 different special operations officers from around the world. And those those officers came from nations that either are butt up against the former Soviet Union or a former Warsaw Pact, have a whole different take on uh, and, and much more aggressive than we would uh, on the uh, uh, on the Russian problem set. Uh, you look at the uh, and again, this goes more to the question, how, how would you how do you um, how do you offset or what's my take on things? My take on the Russians is, hey, I'm not sure what great power competition is, but I am sure in competition, in the general sense, if I got more people on my team than you got, uh, I'm better off. So I'm very much just by base of my background saying, hey, anything I can do for the international special operators in places like Lithuania, Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, all of those nations that abut the Soviet Union, I definitely want to help those guys out. Why? It's not threatening the Soviet Union, but it certainly adds to their problem set. I, I think sometimes we're too easy on, on Putin, but regardless of your, your political bent of saying, hey, we should be doing all kinds of things just to make them think twice uh, about uh, any types of military activities they're taking. NATO does a very good job of, of, uh, of chasing those guys down. Uh, and then if you look at sort of where where we go in the future, uh, uh, you know, the Arctic Ocean is now uh, basically a, you know, ice free in lots of places. 
who would you go to to get advice about how to live, work, and potentially do combat in that environment? I'd spend a lot of time with the, uh, the Swedes, the Finns, and Norwegians, all of whom who had uh, massive experience in, the, in that uh, in that neighborhood. Canada would be as, as well, and our friends and the, the the Koreans are pretty good at that uh, sort of Arctic. Uh, uh, type activity. So, and if that answer your question from a political military point of view again, but from my background, it's hey, let's do what we can to make sure that our alliances are solid and and we have uh, friendly, cooperative relationships with a lot of different nations, and then also be able, from a special operations view, be able to take advantage of their expertise and uh, capabilities. Uh, to really overmatch anything that the Russians uh, can put on the battlefield if it comes to that. Building on that, can you talk about the relationships that you have, not in specifics, but the relationships that you have with foreign special ops um, actors? And I mean, it sounds to me like you're really talking about a blend of sort of soft power and hard power and how important that soft power and those relationships are which I think it feels like sometimes we pay so much attention to sort of the 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 hard power, the military element of this, but really what you're speaking to are the the relationships that we forge. Can you speak to that just a little bit more and and how you do forge these relationships with other other special ops folks from different countries? Well the, sticking with the uh, sort of the Russian problem set to start off with um, NATO is North American Treaty Organization, PS. Just a side note, you can stick in any place, is this field of endeavor is full of acronyms. Uh, anybody you're talking to that from the military and special operations in peculiar can fill a sentence uh, or a paragraph full of acronyms, and it's simple gobbledygook <laughs> to most of the, of, uh, the American public, and we should be ashamed of ourselves for doing that. So, uh, You know that there's a board game on acronyms? There's a there's an actual board name, a board game that is built on having to identify acronyms. Someone gave it to us. Pete and I played exactly one time and he just beat me so hard, so fast. And I threw I threw the game out. I was like, yeah, we're not doing this. I am way too competitive. No, thank you. So, yeah, done. Pete and I should play that game just head to head. You really should. Oh, that would be so much fun. I would just sit back with popcorn and watch. Yeah. Could you play it on the air with us? That would be such a good fundraiser for something. Yeah. Oh my God. Come up with your come up with the most snafu thing you can you can get to. So okay. <laughs> I started with NATO because NATO has its own uh, uh, special operations component as well. Uh, they have a, a headquarters that takes in all twenty nine nations of the NATO alliance uh, to try to get to a common set of uh, capabilities. Again, in my world, looking back at the Cold War, we didn't have that. Um, yeah, so when you talk about building relationships with, uh, uh, with, with, uh, people, uh, you know, I'm, I am now some of the best friends, uh, with some Polish officers who actually lived in the area I was supposed to infiltrate when I was supposed to go to behind the iron curtain during the cold war. So that's 30 years worth of just, uh, depending uh, on on them and watching them grow over time into serious special operations uh, uh, contenders. The NATO soft piece has been very important in that uh, in terms of that's a formal alliance. 
And then we have a lot of these informal alliances where it's very much based on, uh, you know, context on the battlefield. Uh, where you see, um, you know, the, a, a not well publicized, uh, you know, fact in the, in the news is, uh, you know, throughout the Afghanistan and Iraq conflicts of the first uh, 20 years of this, of this, we had a ton of allies and partners that were serving right beside U.S. forces and on their own uh, across. So they've, they've really made a major contribution, not only from the political credibility of the effort, but also from a honest to God uh, 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 on that. Again, from the soft power perspective, Alan, getting to, to what you talked about, I, I think it's a matter of, again, uh, this, this sounds way more uh, academic than I want to, but complicating the strategic calculus of our adversaries by saying, hey, we are really good friends with this nation, that nation, that nation, and that nation. Uh, those things, I think, are important just to make sure that uh, um, uh, and, and special operations provides a very uh, specific venue for that uh, just by nature of uh, there's, there's an, any number of things going on anytime in the special ops community, uh, competitions that are out there, uh, very much firefighter comp like competitions, shoot competitions. So you have this sort of community or network in the globe that, uh, uh, really, uh, we see each other periodically. We keep in track. Uh, those type of things really help to build a, a bench of partners for the United States and, and also then help our partners, you know, keep up with the United States in terms of technological advances. Uh, and we learn from them as well about unique operating environments, et cetera. Um, along those lines, then, can you talk about the relationship that you had with the State Department? What was that like? And I guess I'm thinking about either Foggy Bottom itself or also, you know, the different outposts in different countries. The best way to describe that is to understand sort of how the United States national security operation matters works as a as a of large, which is, uh, you know, the, the the designated representative of the United States in every country is a U.S. ambassador. So unless you're in a combat zone like Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria, you any special operations element that's deployed to country X, Y or Z is getting its marching orders and must coordinate with and be working in concert with uh, the, the U.S. ambassador and his or her staff in any given country. So if you're not, you know, there's, there's gone are the days where you have, uh, you know, even the thought of deploying somebody into a country without checking first. Now, that That's largely uh, one of those myths that, that are out there in the first place. But, uh, um, you know, it, it's normally a very close working relationship uh, that uh, that occurs simply because, you can't get into a country without the approval and coordination with the uh, uh, with the chief of mission and with the uh, uh, embassy staff and ambassador in any given country. Um, over the years, uh, U.S. Special Operations Command um, has invested in this sort of network approach where we have liaison officers at Foggy Bottom. Uh, so there's always a special ops present presence there at, in, in most federal agencies. In fact, you'll find a special operations officer, um, you know, in, in some type of coordinating function just to ensure that there's no cross-threading, people are fully informed, 
Uh, we're working towards the purposes of, of the of the lead federal agencies. Uh, those, those type of things are, are in place now that uh, um, to ensure that, uh, uh, you know, we don't have um, any off the reservation activities. All that is coordinated uh, ahead of time. And, and, and it's very transparent with uh, the civilian branches, what the Department of Defense is doing. And that's really true of most parts of the Department of Defense, all of the part of Defense for that matter. Can you talk a little bit about, um, and you can go any direction you want with this. You can talk about the armed forces in general. You can talk about special operations specifically. That's up to you. But over the course of your career, how uh, the armed forces or special operations have changed from the Cold War to 9-11 to today, are there any significant shifts that you've seen? Can you just sort of describe that trajectory as as geopolitics have changed over time? Yeah, I think you've seen, you know, the, uh, uh, the arc of history that you just described is a pretty long one. I mean, and, and again, my sort of viewpoint is that on that is from a guy that really, you know, served in the middle management, middle ranks of that. Uh, and so really watch some of that change go on. I'm, I'm not the general officer leading that charge, but I am the guy that had to implement a lot of those changes that came along or watch them or watch them happen. So uh, very much when I came into special forces back in the uh, you know, early 1980s, uh, the focus was on the, very much on countering the Soviet Union. What's our uh, the special operations role in a conventional you know, struggle in Europe? Uh, and it wasn't very pretty what the, some of the plans were to uh, uh, that they, we were going to be asked to do in the event of armed conflict. Um, so that that was very much uh, how we train, organized, trained, and equipped back then. Um, very much the 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 pivotal event for all of uh, special operations occurred uh, in the uh, 1979 uh, and 80 with the taking of the Iranian uh, embassy and the subsequent uh, failure of uh, uh, Operation Eagle Claw. That was really the pivotal event uh, in. Uh, development of United States special operations capability and what it's today. Uh, now I will tell you, I had zero to do with any of those, but uh, I had, you know, they, uh, uh, I was listening on the radio to the, um, uh, to reports coming back from the news reports as an infantry officer in a foxhole in, in Fort Lewis, Washington going, okay, this is again, one of those uh, turning points where we need to, uh, you know, we need to do better jobs. So that was very much the, uh, that failure brought about the Holloway Commission, brought about the uh, uh, what we call the Nun-Cohen Amendment, uh, as opposed to that which established special operations in law um, in Title X is uh, just like any of the other armed services, not a, not a service, but a service-like entity. So that change very much affected then the rest of your trajectory. Whereas when we were uh, you know, special forces not associated with any central special operations command in the early uh, 1980s. Um, now that was very formal. They became a very formal branch of the military service. Um, it uh, it very much grew in, um, you know, when I was in, there were maybe three special forces group. I think now there's five. So you saw, first of all, the uh, the centralizing of, of uh, 
uh, organized training equip in the in the four star headquarters in Tampa, uh, the creation of special operations components in each of the uh, uh, each of the services, um, and uh, you know a, a maturing of things like special operations aviation. Uh, you know, we used to, for example, have special operations helicopter detachments at all the special forces groups. Well, those all got pulled up to do the the, the high end aviation stuff that you see at, uh, for instance, Abbottabad uh, when that operation went down to, to get Bin Laden. That was uh, the aviation piece of that was uh, uh, was was exceptional and, and done by exceptional units. Uh, no longer decentralized down to the unit level pulled up because it's it's more effective to organize training with people like that. Um, so sort of watched it grow from a, um, you know, a really a decentralized to more of a centralized uh, uh, enterprise within the Department of Defense uh, since, uh, you know, my, my view of 9-11 was as a brand new civil servant uh, and watched then U.S. SOCOM, um, wrestle with the, the increasingly leading role uh, of special operations in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, so for the first, uh, you, uh, the special operations wasn't the force of choice, but it almost was for those conflicts because of the nature, unconventional uh, environment, uh, counterinsurgency type roles, working with partners. Uh, uh, my, some of my colleagues put a lot of time, sweat and effort, blood into those conflicts, and, and we paid a heavy price both in um, deployment of personnel, long-term health problems, um, and, and you saw the force, uh, the special operations force, taking on a, a pretty good uh, chunk of that responsibility over time. Um, now, as we I sort of transition out, uh, we see again coming to the forefront competition with the uh, uh, some are, are potential great power adversaries, China, Russia, uh, Iran, North Korea. Uh, while we still have that ever-present threat of counterterrorism or terrorism problems out there. So what's the, you know, my, my seat in that uh, that history was not as uh, as a policymaker, but a policy implementer. Uh, uh, I've watched the, uh, the growth of women in special operations uh, over time from when it was uh, virtually unheard of to, a uh, full acceptance of uh, uh, that uh, uh, women have a place in special operations. The uh, and again, uh, getting back to my sort of central theme that I'd like to talk about, which is how well our partners do. You look at uh, nations like Norway have entire uh, special operations units formed uh, out of their uh, uh, female contingents uh, who perform exceptionally well. Uh, at whatever level that uh, they're asked to perform, so you have you have those type of things coming in uh, over uh, over time, uh, you know. But uh, as with anything, uh, you lose something along the way that, uh, as well. Um, some of the loss, I think, was uh, it was frankly it was simpler then. Uh, you 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 did not have a uh, uh, we absolutely know in. You know, we were focused uh, when I was a, a young captain of special forces on a very specific piece of terrain uh, in Eastern Europe and what we would have to do to live and survive on that terrain uh, while conducting uh, combat intelligence activities. Um, it was all very theoretical uh, in, in terms of uh, we knew that our odds of actually having to do that were slim. Uh, but we also knew that 
if we were called upon to do it, the margin for errors would be very small and we'd be very fortunate to get out with all, all 10, all 10 fingers and toes. Uh, and, uh, we really, uh, uh, focused on those sort of one dimensional type things. Now it's a very much broader spectrum of, of activities where, uh, you'll see, uh, um, you see special operations, uh, preparing to execute missions, uh, and figure and trying to figure out what this, uh, competition with the role of special operation in this conflict really looks like. I'm always really interested uh, with historical events. Um, and, and again, your answer might be just the same as anybody else who experienced it uh, and, and who watched it on TV. But I, I, my hunch is that it wasn't. So somebody who has intimate knowledge of the geopolitics of just the the mechanics of how the armed forces work, et cetera, I just feel like you're going to see certain world events differently from somebody like myself who has absolutely no knowledge of that. So put me in your headspace the morning of nine 11, when you see what's going on on the television, um, what thoughts run through your head? How does the world change for you on that day? Um, nine 11 was my second day as a civil servant. Uh, I had retired in June of that year. I did some time as a contractor. I moved back from overseas. So I was very much in that period of transition and just landed my first uh, uh, government service job. So I was actually uh, uh, in processing, uh, you know, getting my security clearance redone uh, when we were all standing there watching the TV and the second plane hit. Uh, and immediately we, uh, uh, we all realized that uh, we were in a state of conflict. Um, I actually was a, 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 a off post at that point. I was at Norfolk Navy Base assigned at that point in time uh, and had to get back on at Norfolk Navy Base. And I knew that if I didn't get back on right away, the gates were coming down because this was a national crisis. So I, I went screaming back to my uh, my unit uh, and just beat the barriers coming down. And then we were essentially trapped for that 12 or 14 hours there on base. Uh, and again, the, the sort of feeling of helplessness that uh, – I think a lot of people felt watching uh, watching events unfold, uh, a sense of disbelief and unhelplessness, and then uh, uh, understanding that uh, um, uh, my unit at that point was uh, my organization at that point was a training unit that was uh, uh, responsible for uh, putting on exercises for special operations, uh, and we were we uh, we sat in my office with a whiteboard and tried to list what you just said there, Lawrence, which is okay. What just changed? What's all that's going to change? And I wish I had taken a picture of that board because uh, it was largely a, a mental exercise to keep us all going nuts. Um, and because uh, there, there were points in time we thought there were 20,000 Americans dead uh, in the given the, the, uh, the, the total number of people flogged to see those, uh, the towers uh, and then the Pentagon being hit. We all had friends uh, uh, in, in that position. So. We actually focused on that. What's different? What's going to what's going to be different? Um, I'd like to say I got a good comprehensive list. Uh, we did not we got some things right. I think uh, in terms of uh, we definitely thought it was uh, uh, you know during the latter part of my military career we saw the rise of Al Qaeda. So that was obviously our first thought when that occurred. Uh, uh, I did some of the uh, background responses for the embassy bombings uh, in. Uh, uh, in Tanzania and in Kenya back in 1998. Uh, so we were familiar with the, the terrorist threat that were out, was out there. Um, uh, so that, that was really how we transitioned through it. Uh, on a personal note, I thought about getting back into the military. 
Uh, I was uh, advised by a very good senior mentor that said, you've made the transition, um, you know, continue what you're doing. Uh, so I stuck with the, the civil servant uh, uh, line of work uh, through that. Um, but uh, uh, my organization then was very much involved in the preparation to go to um, go to Afghanistan. I was not. I was on a different uh, I was seconded over to an outfit that was looking at uh, uh, critical infrastructure protection because we again did, at that time didn't know how many of had operatives were actually in the United States. Uh, and any critical infrastructure was a uh, um, was a uh, potential target. Uh, some of the work that we did on that team eventually got shifted over to U.S. Northern Command when that stood up uh, defense of the homeland. Uh, so that was that was really my experience then was to watch again, sort of watching other people do some extraordinary things. And to, to uh, it, it's a remarkable fact that I think uh, 9-11 occurred. Early September, by the end of October, we have special forces on the ground working again through and with uh, some partners to uh, to get the Taliban off the battlefield and to get uh, Al Qaeda off the battlefield. You know, I, I have associates that have many multiple combat tours in uh, into Iraq and Afghanistan uh, uh, during those conflicts. So that re- really put a lot of stress on on. Special Operations Forces, their families, um, and uh, you know you see today uh, SOCOM very much paying attention to that in terms of uh, support to its uh, its veteran community, its its ongoing community, rehabilitating both wounded uh, uh, wounded warriors and uh, uh, those with the uh, uh, PTSD uh, issues. You see very much SOCOM involved in that nowadays, given that the uh, uh, not that conventional forces didn't, uh, but the uh, the repetitive nature, I think, of those tours really played uh, played heavy on the force. Um, I feel like the military writ large has in. I mean, it's, it's sort of hard to believe it's almost 20 years uh, that we have had forces in Afghanistan and Iraq, but um, that they've gotten better in the last decade paying attention to mental, especially mental health issues of soldiers and sailors and airmen. Um, So I I think that that's such a a good thing. Can you speak just a little bit more about um, what you've seen in terms of a um, a heightened awareness of some of these issues that have always been around, right? I mean, in, in World War One, it was like trench warfare and shell shock and you know, World War II was called something else. And, um, you know, there always has been um, issues when when folks have come back from combat of of being sad and upset and depressed and people just didn't talk about it. But now I think we're talking about it more. And it's I think it's a good thing that the military is paying an increasing amount of attention. What can you speak just a little bit to that? I think what I really observed, uh, particularly giving beginning with uh, uh, Admiral William McRaven uh, was the commander of U.S. Special Operations Command when I arrived there in 2011. Uh, And his, um, very much one of his priorities was to not just recognize that this is a problem, uh, but to put real investment of, of taxpayer dollars at the problem to make sure that the infrastructure uh, was in place uh, down to the unit level uh, 
um, to handle these type of issues for uh, uh, for special operations, both coming on uh, on the battlefield itself and then coming off the battlefield. Uh, 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 it's called that is preserve the force and family. Uh, program is what I think Admiral McCraven called it. Again, give credit where credit's due from a, from a leadership perspective. Um, so getting the money, first of all, up, up front to do that, um, uh, was, I think the significant piece of that. Uh, and then the, the, again, the difference sort of when I was on a special operations attachment back in the eighties, you know, we had our own medic who looked out for us and that was pretty much it. Uh, and if you, uh, you know, came up, Sick, lame, or lazy—we called it. Uh, You—that was all. Look, that was very much looked down upon. You're trying to get out of work. You're malingering. Uh, you know, if you're hungover, uh, go see the medic. You know, he'll he'll run a, uh, a a line into your arm with some rigorous lactate and get back to work. That was kind of that was kind of the mantra when I got there. Handle your own business. Handle your own problem set. Uh, that's very much different now. If you go to a special forces detachment there. Uh, a group, you will find a, uh, an entire infrastructure. Uh, I'm talking about professional sports level quality people that are specifically trained, uh, both to physically and mentally rehabilitate people uh, that are injured, sick. Uh, the some of the, uh, the physical fitness uh, facilities are, are again world world class now. Uh, just to make sure that the the uh, the pointy end of the spear, as we call it, the warriors are uh, kept at the highest level of uh, mental and physical fitness and are given the opportunity to, uh, to rehab when they do re- uh, encounter problems. Um, and again, Congress has been very supportive of that over the last couple of years. And you've seen that, uh, you know, within the within the budget. Can I actually ask a follow up question? Um, so you said budget. And here's my question about that. Back in uh, the olden days, um, special ops had stovepipe budgeting um, funding, which meant that it was, if not like super secret, it was, I believe, classified and it had its own funding line. So it was separate from Department of Defense. Is that still the same uh, case? Because uh, you said at some point that special ops had 2% of the larger DOD funding. Um, but does it have its own sort of separate line? And how is that done these days? Yeah, I mean, uh, I saw that on, on the on the pre uh, on the pretest here, uh, Allie. Um, and again, in fully transparent, you, you can actually probably go online and Google up uh, General Richard Clark's congressional testimony this year. Uh, and it, some of it might sound like what I'm saying, because, again, I'm, I'm not saying anything that I, um, uh, that's off the reservation in terms of what's uh, uh, what's in the public domain out there at the in U.S. SOCOM. Uh, General Clark is like any service chief. The commander of U.S. SOCOM has to go in front of Congress and, and testify to what the, his or her priorities are uh, with respect to the taxpayers' dollars. Uh, there is what makes special operations unique. Uh, I talked earlier about the uh, the, the Nun Cohen Act. National Defense Authorization Act that created U.S. Special Operations Command. One of its pieces, parts, was the creation of a funding stream for special operations that was outside the purview of the of the armed services, so that there would always be a steady stream of 
of money coming into the special operations community. That's called Major Force Program 11 or MFP 11 uh, to use some of the jargon. Uh, so what you see is that chunk of change has grown over time, uh, both the, due to the, the nature of the conflicts we've had, the, the priorities placed by the uh, civilian and military leadership on special operations, the development of special operations, uh, and uh, the growth uh, in men, women, and capability that, you, that you've seen over the last uh, uh, 20 years uh, within the special operations community. So it, it's, I mean, you can go right now, the National Defense Authorization. Is there a classified uh, annex? I don't know. It's classified. I don't have access anymore, so I can't tell you that. But uh, <laughs> how the hell would I know? <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, but yes, the, uh, so you can, you can, you know, go to the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, look up what the, the special operations uh, uh uh, programs are, and you see how much money they're spending on everything from military construction to aviation to, to ammunition. Uh, so it's all out there in the, in the public domain. Can you tell us a little bit about how somebody makes their way into special operations? So are you identified and recruited? Do you, uh, you know, apply to be uh, in special ops? How does that work? What's the, for most folks who make their way into Special forces. How does that happen? Now, okay. So let's go back to the let's go back to the cinematic question you asked earlier, because again, I, I think that plays plays a big uh, role in focusing people and at least giving people a taste of what they want to do. So, you know, I'm not a Hollywood critic, and I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn last night, but I just <laughs> I named the only movie that I'm aware of that actually uh, talks about Army Special Forces. I'm sure something else is out there. I'll think of it. But uh, if you look at it, 90 percent of those films that are out there nowadays involve what? Seals. OK, so we uh, uh, the, the, the Navy guys are way better at this than we are in the Army in terms of uh, uh, you know, getting their story into the uh, uh, into the line of work. One of the questions you had, Alec, was, you know, what they miss, what they got wrong in, in some of the cinemas. Again, with my minimal combat background, I'm not going to go in, into a lot of it, but. Uh, you know, uh, if people want to kind of understand what's going on, uh, prior to talking to a recruiter, Zero Dark Thirty is a good movie. Um, uh, Lone Survivor is a great movie in terms of, again, getting the ethos of what it's like to serve on a SEAL detachment or Special Forces 18. Uh, Tears of the Sun, another SEAL-centric movie set in Africa. So there's some things out there you can look at and say, okay, what's this really like? Uh, in terms of my inter- what am I going to be expected to do? Uh, there's obviously always over some uh, over aggrandizement and that stuff. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a movie. Um, but uh, to your point specifically about recruiting, uh, yes, there are specific special operations recruiters out there. Uh, you walk into any um, recruiting station and ask about special operations, you'll be uh, showing the portfolio. Uh, my former uh, boss, who I just left, was a recruiting battalion commander. He's way better qualified to talk to him than I am about that. Uh, but to suffice to say is, um, you know, there is the, the one thing that Army, Navy, Air Force, all special operations elements have in common is, um, yes, you can enlist and, and sign up and and. Uh, be tracked to be a special operator, but everybody goes through a common, not a common, but a service selection and assessment uh, 
program, which is, uh, you know, basically designed to challenge, uh, the individual, um, and again, to use your analogy, uh, Ali from, uh, uh, from GI Jane, what you were watching was Bud's basic underwater demolition school uh, for the SEALs. And, and uh, Hell Week is designed to sort people out and say, are you really interested in doing this? Go ring the bell if you're not. Uh, and, and everybody has that aspect of it, which is, uh, you know, Fort Bragg's uh, Special Forces Schools or selection assessment is two weeks long. Uh, and uh, if you opt out, hey, no harm, no foul. Maybe this just wasn't for you. Um so that's really how you get into special uh, operations at, uh, at any one of the services. Uh, they do a, because of the most special operators are not uh, uh, recruited and, and assessed right off the street. Most come from already serving units. Uh, there are specific recruiters inside the Navy, inside the Army that uh, go around post to post, station to station to, uh, 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 to recruit special operations forces. That was my my hunch was that, you know, there's there probably had to be some infrastructure for identifying, not just waiting for folks to go to the recruiters themselves. Right. Check. That is correct. Uh, totally non-serious question. Um, but you've run down a whole list throughout our conversation uh, of movies that got it right. Come on. Tell me a movie you were watching where you were like, this is just bull crap. This is not how the armed forces work. Uh, what's the one about the guy behind the lines in uh, in Bosnia? I can't think that that came to mind. I can't I can't think of the name of it. Oh, oh, oh! Wasn't it called like Behind Enemy Lines? Yeah, I think it was Behind Enemy Lines. Exactly. So, uh, you know, that one just and I kind of went, all right, stop. Uh, uh, <laughs> only only that that was the chunk we were involved in. And, uh, in the Kosovo conflict was uh, some of the combat search and rescue things that went on there. Uh, and some of that was you know, Pat and Hokum, I thought was uh, from, from the, from the point of view. Um, so were you able to make it through the whole movie? Uh, I don't think I did actually. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you, you also left out Ernest in the army, <laughs> which, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah, as soon as I get into Hollywood critiques, I'm probably way, way out of my league. I'm a retired civil servant. I have a limited scope. I don't create policy. I execute it kind of kind of thing. When you ask me questions <laughs> about what did I think was really stupid, I don't want to leave myself open to uh, open to too much uh, blowback <laughs> from this thing. So, okay, for the record, he did not say Ernest scared stupid. Okay, that was me. That's good. Right. I oh, said right. Ernest Scared Stupid was a terrible movie. You have direct all of your hate mail to me. Yeah. Can I ask you a question about um are are there internecine fights between like the Green Berets and the Rangers? I mean, are, are like do you guys have like softball teams? I mean, are there rivalries? Are there, you know, you know, sort of like, ooh, I know those guys. I was totally out of the closet a few minutes ago with my personal animus toward the SEALs community and their, and their, uh, <laughs> their they have the Hollywood market cornered. So the, the short answer to that one is, hell yeah, there's, there's, there, <laughs> there's service rivalries everywhere. I mean, you know, look at, look at the Army Navy game for crying out loud. I mean, 
Where else do you get them? You know, oh yeah, seventy-five thousand adults sitting in the stadium screaming at each other with towels wrapped around your head. That's that's uh, so. Uh, uh, but yeah, that's that stuff occurs all the time, and most of it's pretty pretty good natured, um, uh, and it's and it's it's well intentioned. I mean, there are places to go to take out that competitive aggression. You know, the best ranger competition, for example, is you know is a competition where they take essentially a, a, a two man or two woman team and you have to go through a series of events uh, that, and it's, you know, it's timed, it's graded, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you don't have to be a ranger to go to those uh, seals, go to those things. There's, there's all manner of sniper competition who can take the, uh, take the best shots. So there are all types of uh, this, this type of rivalry. And if you don't think for one second that people don't keep score of it, then you don't understand the nature of, uh, and it's just basic uh, American competition. So, yes, that sort of stuff exists all the time. Um, you know, years ago was the uh, it was the headgear. The fact the Rangers now wear tan headgear is not, not black headgear, uh, you know, in the effort to get everybody into a beret uh, way back when we still think in the uh, in special forces, we got the best headgear because it's a green beret. How could you, you know, often copied, never, never duplicated. So, uh uh, yeah, that kind of sort of thing goes goes on all 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 the time. So I wanted you to um, explain uh, psyops to us, and I wanted to tell the story of the time that you came to my class and explained psyops. And I'm not sure if you remember when you did that. I, I think Do you I, remember I, that? I think I made a, a comment about your car, uh, <laughs> some type of lame mobile and that 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 impression would always be seated within your student's head something along no it was it was so much more devastating than that and i'm not sure that i ever followed up with you so i think i need for you to know what it was you did to me which was you you psyopsed me so thank you for that uh you went through the i think there were three areas and you said something about psychological operations and a young woman raised her hand and said, what's what are psyops? And you said, well, you know, people imagine that it's, you know, like brainwashing, but it's really not just changing someone's behavior. Let me give you an example. What kind of car does Dr. Dagnus drive? And all of them said a Honda minivan. And you said, yep, that's right. And what does she have on her bumper? And they said an Obama sticker. And you said, yep, that's right. And you turned around, picked up a piece of chalk and wrote your personal email address on the board. And you said, write this down. And they all did. And you said, I will send anyone $20 if you take a picture of you putting a Mitt Romney or Sarah Palin bumper sticker next to the Obama sticker on the back of Dr. Dagnus's car. And I went, Bill, what are you doing? And you said, I'm changing behavior. And I said, why would you change their behavior? And you said, I'm not. I'm changing yours. And I said, what are you talking about? And you said, they're not going to do it. But you are going to look on your bumper every time you go out to your car now. And damned if I didn't. Every time I went out to my car, I looked on my bumper. And I'm not talking about for weeks, Bill. I'm talking about for years. I got a new minivan and I still looked on my bumper to see if there was a Sarah Palin bumper sticker out there. And it just I, I asked you, I was like, how did you know that no one would do it? And you said, I walked into the room and it was obvious that they liked you. $20 was not enough 
for them to risk their grade. And also it took a lot for them to actually like get a bumper sticker, (laughs) put it on the back, like take a picture, send it to me. They didn't know if I'd actually send them the money. It was the cost benefit analysis. They weren't going to do it. That's so much work, bro. Exactly. And that's exactly that was (laughs) PSYOPs. And it worked so well. I still every now and then I don't even drive a minivan anymore. And I still look at my bumper. (laughs) So you, my friend, that was the best example. I can't, I can't pass that one up. My only question, you still got an Obama sticker on? No, I actually, wait, do I have an Obama sticker? No, 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 I don't. I don't actually. No, I don't. Mm -mm. It's a new car. Yeah. Can you, uh, can you describe to me, uh, in your time in the services, uh, you said you didn't have a lot of combat experience, but you, you certainly dealt with a lot of folks who did. What's one of the harshest environments that you've ever heard of special operations having to operate within? I would say um, a, a not well publicized um, aspect is the uh, the conflicts in northern Iraq and in Syria over the last two to three years. Uh, you know, that's very much damped down. But that environment, by everything I said, was, first of all, uh, hugely complex. You got Turkey, you got Russia, you got uh, Iran, you got Iraq, uh, you got the the different types of militias. I can't imagine what uh, uh, what operating on the ground was like. Uh, it was austere. Uh, and again, you had uh, the sort of political constraints with, hey, we have a troop level that we can't exceed uh, in, in those environments. Uh, it was, uh, uh, you know, highly stressful in that it had aspects of uh, uh, some of, you know, essentially World War One trench warfare uh, in a lot of cases being run by special operations guys directing uh, uh, militia forces to do things. So I, I think just in, in observing over time some of the, uh, uh, the complex environments, that would be one of them. Um, uh, Afghanistan, parts of Afghanistan, Iraq are equally as, as challenging, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, but again, there are a ton of people way better qualified than I am to uh, to speak to those challenges. What are you looking forward to most in retirement? The afternoon naps, the morning golfing? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm, uh, you know, we, we move. I'm, OK, so I'm one of four people that actually left Florida this year. Uh, on a <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, government, Governor Santos called me personally and said, what are you doing? You're breaking my record. Um, <laughs> I, I if you stay, we get a ninth extra yeah, congressional no, see, seat. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, I moved back up here to this area uh, to be closer to my kids. I got a son uh, who uh, works for the Archdiocese of, uh, of Richmond in, in Richmond and a daughter who works for the Department of Defense. So I got big institutions covered, Catholic Church on one hand, Department of Defense on the other. Uh, and I, we wanted to be a place where uh, we, we could see the kids. It would be easy for them to visit us. Um, so I'm learning how to uh, interested in, as I said, watch Kathy play good golf while I play bad golf. Uh, I got to figure boats out. I live uh, uh, in a community in Lake Anna. So I'm trying to figure boats. That should be all over uh, uh, interesting. I'm Speaking of my insurance, I'm speaking of my insurance company right after I hang up with you guys. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm, I, and I'm kind of interested, frankly, in in uh, 
not being a part of the debate, but also um, I, I do think I have some perspectives to share um, about this, uh, the, 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 the journey. Uh, I think my last job gave me some unique insights into our international partners. Uh, and and uh, I've seen up close and personal some of where our own policies, uh, U.S. policies, preclude us from doing a better job in that. Uh, so I want to write a couple of papers on that uh, in terms of uh, uh, places where we uh, talk a good game about the importance of our international partners. And then we turn right around and don't share the requisite uh, information and technologies with them. Um, uh, when nothing stops us from doing that other than our own short sightedness. So I think there's some things like that. I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to dabble in retirement. Uh, as I said, I'm a new grandfather. So, uh, uh, and I got a new blender. I'm interested in cranking my new blender up this weekend. Uh, so, <laughs> and, and frankly, Ali, I'm interested in having you at P-Town pretty, pretty damn soon. Uh, so, well, uh, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, increase your desire to have us come visit because I have a frozen margarita recipe that's going to knock your socks off for that new right. blender. So, All right, cool. Yep. All right, great. Let me dangle that in front of you. Yeah. After Allie leaves, you'll have to buy a new blender because she'll wear it out. <laughs> <laughs> the motor will exactly. die. <laughs> the cord will burn out. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. This was really, really fascinating. Uh, Allie, I'm, I'm flattered that you asked me to do that. Uh, and now I know that the main reason was is because I, I pulled off one psyop in my life that was successful. Actually, two. I convinced Kathy to marry me. That was that was the con <laughs> job of my life. So uh, so having having Kathy talking her to marry me has been uh-huh. was a pretty good psyop. And the, your back bumper is number two. So now nah, it's a great it's been a great experience. I was happy to share this with some folks, and I'm, I'm hoping people uh, take this in the spirit of what you guys approach me, which is. Uh, uh, let's let's be a part of the discourse. And if there are further questions, uh, I'm at bill.flesser.gmail.com. And he'll send you $20 if you put a Sarah Palin right. bumper sticker on the back of my car. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Again, thanks very much for the time. Uh, uh, remember those people who are not here. Uh, you know, America does a pretty good job with that. So let's, uh, let's hopefully continue that and uh, in the theme of this and things that join us together and not things that pull us apart. I agree with you. 100%. Thanks, Bill. Great Thank talking to you guys. So Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Before we go, we want to remind you to visit our website, utterlymoderatenetwork.com. There you can find all of our podcast episodes and their companion resources, our guide to reliable news outlets, the contact page where you can suggest topics for future shows and more. That's utterlymoderatenetwork.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. And until then, we'll play you out with friends of the show, the Riders in the Sky. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Smile and until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again 
betrayals to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing the song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you till we meet again. Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.